Well, today is a, uh, a special day, right? Today is Palm Sunday, so we're all excited about that. Uh, speaking of special days, I was uh, you know, telling my daughter to get ready for dinner, and I said, Rachel, she's my youngest, she's two, I said, we, you got to wash your hands, and so she's all excited, she runs in, and she's ready to do it, and she looks at me, and she says, is today hand-washing day? <laughs> so she, regard, uh, you know, don't read into that too much, we Washes her hand more than just one day. But, uh, but Palm Sunday is, is, is the day, of course, that we um, remember and celebrate Jesus' grand and symbolic entrance into Jerusalem. So if you want to turn, we'll be in Luke chapter 19 this morning. And let me just take a minute and, um, and pray. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May you be seen and glorified as holy this morning. And God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is so much um, brokenness and pain and chaos and difficulty in the world. And God, we need you as the king. And there's so much of that, not only in our world, but in our hearts. And so we need you as the king in our hearts. Jesus, you, you came into Jerusalem as the king to bring peace. Come into our hearts as the king to bring peace. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been thinking about peace, right? Where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we'll see that he's, uh, he comes on a mission of peace. And so I've just been, you know, contemplating peace. And, and peace is something we all want, we all need, really. And we can add all kinds of adjectives in front of that. You know, maybe it's financial peace, right? That's, Dave Ramsey's got this whole ministry about bringing financial peace. Um, you've got relational peace. I've got a, a good friend of mine, uh, not at this church elsewhere, but he's he called me uh, the other day, and he's just like, i got to give you an update on my life. And he told me about how his marriage is crumbling, and there's just a lack of peace in his, in his marriage and his family. It's, it's crushing him, right? It's sucking the life out of him. And then, uh, of course, um, internal peace. Right? Again, there's just so much, so much anxiety and stress and depression even in our world that people would do harmful things even to themselves, and, and you just see that internal, where, is that, where does that come from? It comes from this lack of internal peace. And uh, you can think about it at a national level, too, right? We, we want our leaders. We have kings and elected, or we don't have kings. We used to. We're done with that. All right. So we have elected officials, and, and what do we want our leaders to do? We, one of the things we want our leaders to do is ensure peace. We, we don't want to go to war. We don't want to have a terrorist, right? We, we want security. We want peace. And then, of course, there is a, a spiritual component, right? What is our relationship with God? Is our relationship with God one of hostility? Or is our relationship one, with God one of peace? And so what, that's what we want to look at. We want to look at Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem, this Palm Sunday. He comes in, and he comes in as this king, and he recognizes he's on a mission of peace, and the people recognize that he is on this mission of peace, as we'll see. 
So that's what they want their king to do. But then the question is, how is, how are they going to accomplish, how is Jesus going to accomplish this peace? How does he get there? And how do we, in all these different areas of peace, how do we try to accomplish peace and security and justice and all, all those good things in our lives? And we'll look at how, does, how is Jesus going to do it. And what that's going to require us to do a little bit is to look forward beyond Palm Sunday to the rest of Holy Week. Of course, to the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate here at the end. And then, of course, to the cross. But, but the nuggets of that reality are even present in this passage out of Luke, from Luke chapter 19. So, let's just take a minute and read through our passage. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Starting in verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come when you or your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I want to look at three things. First of all, what, is it, what are we going to see about Jesus' identity? What are we going to see about Jesus' identity? Then what are we going to see about Jesus' mission? And then finally, what is Jesus' method? So that's kind of that's our overview of the text. And then I'm going to look at three responses in the text. So that's how, how, how did people at that time respond to Jesus? And then the question remains for us, how will we respond to Jesus? So first of all, looking at Jesus' identity. The first point is that Jesus here is showing himself. He's using symbolism. And the gospel writer Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is king. We're just gonna, this, is, this is something you, we know, you should all know. We sang about it this morning. We praise God because, of his, because he is the king, because Jesus is on the throne. But we, I just want us to see how this fits into the text, the different elements in the text. So the first thing we see is this parable of the ten minus. Now, we didn't read that today, but if you recalled when we read verse uh, 28, it says this, after Jesus had said this, he went up ahead going to Jerusalem. What's this? What's the this that he said? And so if you want to look back at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 11, so for me that's back one page, we see that, Jer uh, that Jesus is telling a parable. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
So he's saying, he's near Jerusalem. Everybody's, this great anticipation is building up. Jesus the Messiah is here. Jesus the promised king is here. So Jesus tells them a parable. And here's what he says. Verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. And so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus, one, one per. And he said, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And then how the story goes is, is this king goes off, and then you've got, it goes to the story of these, these servants. And one of them, what does he do? He takes the one chunk of money here, and he invests it, or he, he puts it to work somehow, and he gets ten more. And then one puts it to work and gets five more, and then one does, disobeys the master and hides it in the ground and buries it and doesn't do anything with it. And the master comes back, and he gives rewards to the one who, got, who gave the ten. He gives rewards to the one who made the five. And to the one who just buried it, he said, what does he do? There's judgment at the end of that story, right? It's the, his one is taken away, and all the people who didn't want this guy to become king, they're actually put to death. It's a pretty scary ending at the end of that parable. But how does that connect here? The point is, Jesus is coming in. Who, who's the person of royal birth in that story? It's pretty obvious. It's Jesus. So who is the king? It's Jesus. Jesus is going... And we'll see, this is, that's pointing to his second coming, right? He's coming again. But now here he is. He's entering in Jerusalem. This person of royal birth, he's the king. So that just, even just the context sets us up for understanding this. Then there's the whole entrance into Jerusalem. Even just going into Jerusalem was symbolic. Now, this was Passover week. This was the time right before Passover. And so there were lots of people coming into Jerusalem. So that itself was not that unusual. But again, there's all this anticipation building up, all these great crowds that are interested in following Jesus. And so he's this, he's already considered this, um, this messianic figure in some way, like this promised king. Now he is entering into Jerusalem. Now there's a passage in Zechariah, which we're going to get to later, that it says, Behold, Jerusalem, here comes your king. He's riding on a colt, on a donkey. And so Jesus is going to pull in that story, that whole story comes in, well, there's an understanding that the, this promised king was going to come. How is he going to show his interest? He's coming into Jerusalem. So, again, all this anticipation is building up. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. There's the whole bit about getting the colt. It's kind of an interesting that Luke spends so much time on this. What's Jesus doing? He says, go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you're going to find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. And just get it. Just untie it. Just, I mean, that's, that's pretty bold, isn't it, kind of Jesus? Just, there's, a, there's a colt, you're going to find it, untie it. If anybody bothers you, what are you doing untying that colt? Just say the Lord, the Lord needs it. The master needs it. And so that's exactly what happens. They go in, they start untying it. Why are you doing this? The Lord needs it, they get it. And there's uh, other, uh, other gospel texts tell us that there's also a donkey with it. So they're getting this donkey, they're getting this colt. But Jesus is going in there and just commandeering this animal. And he knows what's going to happen. And what this is trying to, I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that he's in charge. He's got the authority to just go and do that. That's something a king could do. A person of royal birth, they could just go and they could commandeer the animal. They're in charge. Again, it's a more symbolism. Jesus is in charge. And then there's the fact that it's an unridden colt. It's a colt that no one has ridden. An unridden colt would be an animal that is set apart for a specific purpose. It's set apart for someone of royal birth or maybe for a high priest or something like that. So the kind of animal is, is all pointing to Jesus' royal heritage. And then, of course, we've got the cloaks in Luke, and then in 
John, it tells us also about the palm branches, where we call this Palm Sunday, and they take the cloaks and they put it on the colt and they put it on the donkey and they take the cloaks and they, they put them on the ground. They are showing him kingly honor. It's like, it's like in Hollywood rolling out the red carpet for your royalty, right? Or for your king, rolling out the red carpet. That's what they're doing. They're showing him a kingly honor. And then, of course, we've got the praise of the disciples. Verse 38, they, they praised God for all the miracles that they had seen Jesus perform. What does that tell them about Jesus? They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And there they're harking back to the, to the passage that the kids read this morning, or the kids recited this morning. By the way, I don't know if anybody else had this reaction, but when I saw those kids up there, I thought it and said out loud to myself, actually. Oh, you didn't hear me. But I said, that's a lot of kids. Wasn't that exciting to see? Isn't that a lot of kids? That was awesome. I was excited by that. Anyway, so, so they, they read uh, part of Psalm 118 this morning. And that's what the disciples are doing. The blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize Jesus as king. Now, we get this. Again, I, 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 I lay all this out because I want us to see it in the text, okay? I want us to, you know, this is not just anybody making stuff up. This is in the te- very clear in the text, Jesus is king. But how does, this, how does this apply? Let's take a minute to talk about application, right? There's, there's a lot of ways that we could apply Jesus, Jesus being king. I mean, one is he's king, so we submit to his rule in our lives. That's a good one. That's a good application. But the application here, I think, is, is a praise that we see Jesus as king, and we're glad about that. We're excited about it. We praise God along with his disciples. We sing, Hosanna. We say, Lord, save us. Yes, God is king. Why were the disciples so excited? Why were the crowds so excited that Jesus was king? Because they saw in the world a pretty messed up place. Um, I was listening to a sermon this morning by a guy by the name of Tim Mackey. So I'm listening to this sermon, and he's talking about the whole beheading of John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist had said to Herod, you know, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. And he kind of gave a little bit of background information. And this whole thing was just, it, it, that whole process was messed up for a king to do, right? But there's a whole other bit about that, where there's this infighting among the kingdom, centered around this guy taking his, his brother's wife. It's leading to civil war within the kingdom and these, these battles at the border. I mean, so there's just this unrest. And then on top of that, so you've got all that chaos. And then on top of that, you've got the Jewish people who are, who are uh, their religious freedoms are being taken away and, and they're, they're taxed highly and unfairly. And they just look around and say, man, this is a messed up world that we live in. Our rulers, our kings are just, uh, they're a mess. We need another king in here. And if you can look around the world, you can see that too. And it's not just in the political realm, although certainly we see plenty of messed up things in the political realm, of course. Right? But... But it's in uh, all the things I talked about at the beginning, right? In, in our relationships, in our, in our internal struggles. Um, there's just so much brokenness we see in the world. Sin and rebellion. And even if I'm honest, sin and rebellion in my own heart. I've, in my sin, I make myself king. And by the Holy Spirit, I recognize I need a new king here. And if Jesus is going to come in and be the king, Yes! That's good. I recognize. I need that. Praise God for that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord into my heart. That's what I need. So we praise God. We praise God for that. It's good news that Jesus is king. 
That's his identity. Secondly, let's take a look at his mission. He is on a mission of peace. And again, just a few observations. I talked about how he, you know, he commandeers the cult. That shows his king. The fact that it's an unridden cult shows that it's king. But the fact that it's a cult, and then also a donkey, again from the other gospel writers, see, these are, these are lowly animals. As, it, as it, We'll get, eventually get to Zechariah. Once we get to Zechariah, we'll see. Your, your king comes humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fool of a donkey. And so these are, these are not war horses. Jesus is not coming into Jerusalem riding on a tank, you know. Now, Jesus is going to be aware of an event that happened um, 150 or so years before he came on the scene. And that was, that was the, the Maccabees. There was this Maccabean revolution. There was this powerful Jewish family right? And they, uh, they, come in, they, they come in as conquerors, and they come in as, as kings, just like, right? And some people, oh, maybe this is the Messiah coming in, and they come into Jerusalem conquering, victorious, and they depose all the foreign powers, and they, they do all that. They set up their own kingdom. Now, there's a contrast between what they were doing and what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is on a mission of peace. And then, of course, again, we saw the praise of the disciples. We read before, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then look what they see. Well, look what they say. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. This is echoing, I think, what the angels praised when Jesus was born. Peace on earth. Right? Peace on earth. Good news for those on whom his favor rests. Right? This is This is good. And now here the disciples are saying peace in heaven, right? They understand Jesus is on a mission of peace. And then, of course, we have Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Look what he says here. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would what? Bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. What was going to bring them peace? Jesus would have brought them peace. What did they miss? What didn't they see? They didn't see Jesus. They didn't recognize his identity. They didn't recognize his mission, I don't think. And they definitely didn't see his method coming, which we'll get to. So Jesus is on a mission of peace. And again, what's our application here? One thing is we adopt as Jesus' people Jesus' mission. I think so often we, we adopt instead a posture of warfare. Now there is a there is a Paul gives us the imagery of warfare, right? When he says, put on the full armor of God. So there is a sense in which we are in spiritual battle, but it's a spiritual battle. Our enemies are not against flesh and blood, but against powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So there is a spiritual warfare, but, but Jesus was not bringing a physical war. He was, he was bringing an invitation, an opportunity to peace. And I think that is our same posture. We are peacemakers. Paul says this, that we are supposed to have the ministry, or not just we're supposed to have, but we do have the ministry of reconciliation. That is our job. And part of that ministry of reconciliation is peace between, and, and, and uh, inviting people to peace between man and God. So you can have peace with God. How? Through Jesus' death on the cross. And then in that, there is also a reconciliation in our relational, interpersonal reconciliation that flows out of that peace that we have with God. So we adopt, as Jesus' people, Jesus' mission. The third thing that we see is that how does Jesus do it? 
How does he bring this peace? Or how does he bring this salvation? He brings it through sacrifice. Now Jesus uses two passages in this text. And the first one's going to be Zechariah chapter 9. And the second one we'll see is Psalm 118. So let's just take a minute and, and read through these. And, and, sh- and I just want to show you where they lead, okay? So again, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt on the foal of the donkey. So this is, clearly this is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. It's bringing peace. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Catch that a little bit at the end? So the whole idea of freeing from a waterless pit, that's an image of salvation, right? They got the prisoners, they throw them in a pit. And God is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free you out of that waterless pit. But it's the, the line right before that I'm most interested in. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you. In other words, we've got this king. The king is coming into Jerusalem. He's righteous. He's victorious. He's going to bring peace. People are thinking, great, how do I fit into this? How do I participate in this peace? How do I participate in this covenant? How do I participate in, in all this good stuff this king is going to bring? And Zechariah says, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now, where are people's minds going to go to here? What's this blood of the covenant? Maybe they could be going back to, to God's covenant with Abraham when there was the blood spilled and the covenant uh, there where God passes through the center of these animals, right? Or more likely, Passover. Passover with the blood of the lamb. A renewal of the covenant. And every time Israelites would, would celebrate the Passover, what were they doing? They were renewing the covenant with God. And what did that blood symbolize? Well, it symbolizes a number of things. One, it symbolizes God's enduring faithfulness. That God is always going to be faithful to his promise. He seals it in blood. He is faithful to his promise. And that's shown in this, this sacrificial lamb that's, whose blood is spilled. And then, of course, there's the there's the atonement part of it, or there's the, there's the substitution part of it, where the blood is spilled on behalf of the people so that they do not experience God's judgment. So, see how this points? It points us forward. And then we see Psalm 118, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. That Lord, save us. That's, that's Hosanna. Okay? And there, that's Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord, We bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Hey, there's our palm branches with bows in hand. Join in the feastal procession. Join in the parade. This is a party. Where are we going? Up to the horns of the altar. So our image in Psalm 118 is you've got a king, and he's he's leading people in this big party, in this big procession. And they're praising God. They're shouting hallelujah to God. Lord, bless you. Blessed is the king who comes in. Everybody's excited about this. And the the king goes up, and he goes up into the temple, and he goes up to the horns of the altar, and there he's going to lay down his sacrifice. There's going to be an animal that's slaughtered. And it's it's a celebration, actually. And so in one sense, Jesus is the king 
who comes and offers the sacrifice. He's the king of Psalm 118. But we know also that Jesus is more than that. He's also the high priest in Hebrews. It says Jesus is the perfect high priest who comes and offers the sacrifice. He's the one that does it for the people. And all, all the other human priests, they die, they get old, they sin. They have to atone for themselves. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He's the perfect high priest. But then it's even more than that. He is actually the lamb himself. He is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice that brings peace. He is in himself the blood of the covenant. He is fully fulfilling Zechariah. He is fully fulfilling Psalm 118 and all of the, New, all of the Old Testament. Now, I hope we see this. This is cool because, you know, I, I kind of want to say, how do I... Um, does, does just, do we have two different pictures in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and what we see later this week with the Lord's Supper and the cross? And no, it, I think it's continuous. I think Jesus saw how all these pieces fit together. They all lead us in this same, the whole scripture leads us in the same story. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. All right, and of course it becomes more and more clear at the Last Supper. Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he takes the he takes the wine, he pours it out, and he says, this is what? The blood of my covenant. And then, of course, on the cross. Jesus dies as the sacrificial lamb, as the Passover lamb. To do what? To bring peace. Now, this is kind of a, you could think of all kinds of different ways to bring peace. You could bring, you could bring peace by conquering all your enemies. And you know what? Jesus is coming a second time, and there is a picture of judgment there, Right? But the way that Jesus is bringing his offer of peace right now is through this sacrifice. It all leads there. And it's an upside-down way of doing it. But it's Jesus' way. Therefore, it's the way that Jesus' people adopt. So how can we react, or how can we respond? And I see three different responses in the text. So the first one is this suppression. Some people see this. And they say, ah, I don't like that. I don't like what's going on here. They're threatened by it. Look what it says. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now it's interesting, they don't go to the crowds and say, Hey guys, quiet down. They know they can't get the crowds, but they can. They do go to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, come on, rebuke your disciples. What are they doing? They're making a big ruckus here. What if Rome hears this? What if Roman soldiers go back and they respond they, they're going to come in, they're going to shut this place down, it's going to be a big mess. Right? Then maybe they're worried about that. I mean, they already don't like Jesus. We see that all, the, all over the These are already people that are opposed to Jesus. So what do they do? They try to suppress Jesus. Now, it's not surprising to me that Jesus' enemies try to suppress him. But the truth is, sometimes even Jesus' friends try to suppress Jesus or his praise. And may that not be us. Maybe may not say, oh man, God, those, those people praising you over there, that's kind of embarrassing. Can you quiet down those disciples a little bit? Or maybe more significantly, we suppress the praise of Jesus in our own hearts. And we say, you're, what, you're, you're meddling in something kind of uncomfortable right now, Jesus. You're kind of getting in an area of my life that I don't really want you to be king in. And we try to suppress Jesus. I praise you here. And so it doesn't surprise me that his enemies want but may we not, as Jesus' disciples, suppress Jesus. The second thing is a picture of blindness. It's not as active or as obvious, maybe, as just outright, we're going to try to shut down Jesus. But it's just as dangerous, actually. As he approached Jerusalem, 
and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden. It is hidden from your eyes. Now this blindness that they are experiencing is it's not innocent blindness. They had every opportunity. They had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. And they're guilty of that blindness. And so, what does Jesus say? You missed it. And it says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will, be built, will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. So Jesus sees the blindness, this willful blindness, and he weeps over this. He's not, he's not shown as being really angry. Now, right after this, he's going to go into the temple, and he gets pretty angry. He cleanses the temple. But just here, what's he doing? He sees the judgment that's coming, and he weeps. He cries over it. And I, I'm convicted there. Because sometimes my responses to the blindness that I see is anger, frustration, and sometimes it's just plain indifference. And I need to have the heart of Jesus. Okay? But Jesus weeps over this. He sees the blindness, and he he weeps over it, and he weeps because he sees what's coming. Now, about 30 years, or 30 or 40 years from the writing of this, the tensions between the Jewish people and the Roman authorities escalates. And there are, there's a rebellion by the Jews in around the year 67. And part of this rebellion, there's, you know, the Romans, they impose a tax, and the, Roman, and the Jews have a big a tax rebellion, right? We're going we're gonna to oppose this, right? This was Tea Party, or this was the uh, Boston Tea Party before the Boston Tea Party, right? They're mad. But they go, they go beyond that, right? There's a, there's a garrison of Roman soldiers, a bunch of Roman soldiers, and some of the Jewish people, they, they come in and they, uh, they ambush them and they completely massacre the whole group of soldiers. And I mean, we can, we can kind of see, yeah, I, I, this, what's interesting is that what they do doesn't seem that crazy to me because of the oppression that they were under. But that was not the way of Jesus. That was not the way that Jesus had taught them to go about this. They had said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If a soldier comes and says, go with me one, go with them two. Right? So they had, they had followed a, a way that was not the way of peace. They were not following in the way of Jesus. And that escalation eventually leads to this encircling of Jerusalem, exactly what Jesus has said. And basically the Romans starve them out. It's really sad. And Jesus sees this. He said, you didn't follow the way. And therefore, there's a judgment. But it's more than just that they didn't follow the way. That's part of it. That's, that's the history of it. But Jesus also points to it. He said, why is this going to happen? Because you didn't recognize the time of my coming. You did not recognize. The bigger issue here is that they missed Jesus' identity. They missed his mission. And they missed his method. They missed Jesus, and we can miss Jesus. And I don't want you guys to miss Jesus. I, I, I would weep over any of you. If I had the heart of Jesus anyway, if I had that, that right attitude, I should weep over those who are missing Jesus. So may we not be those. And please, please do not miss Jesus. Because the result of that is judgment. But there's another response here, and I think this is the one we want to emulate. It's a response of praise. I love what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
Here's some good news. Jesus is going to be praised. Nothing is going to stop the exaltation and praise of Jesus the King. Isn't that awesome? Nothing is going to stop. If you quiet all of his disciples, if you can figure out his science, silence all, which you can't, by the way, because there are disciples and followers of Jesus who throughout history will not stop the praise of Jesus even up to the point of death. And I hope that we're like those people too. But even if you could, all of creation is nevertheless going to cry out in praise of King Jesus. It cannot be suppressed. And so the only question then is, are we going to participate in that praise or not? And we got to this morning, as we shouted, as we praised, as we sang Hosanna, as we exalted King Jesus, we got to join with all of creation. We got to join with all the saints. We got to join with the disciples in giving praise to Jesus. that good news? That's awesome. So Jesus will be praised. Now, he's worthy of our praise. He sets things right. As we look around in the world and we see things that are not set right, it is good news that there is a King Jesus who comes and he sets things right. And the way that we participate in that is because we, we participate in the peace that he brings and we participate in the peace that he brings through his sacrifice. And so, um, men, if you guys want to come up, we're going to be serving communion. That's what we're going to do right now. We are going to symbolically participate in Jesus' death. Now, this is, a, this is a symbolism, right? As Jesus came into Jerusalem... At the Mount of Olives, he was, he was performing a symbolic act, right? His, and his enthronement, uh, as he was coming in, we see his enthronement after his resurrection. He goes up in heaven, he's enthroned on high, right? So what Jesus was doing is doing a symbolic act. And so what we have here as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act, right? If, if you have put your faith in Jesus already, then you have already participated with Jesus in his death. And you already participate with Jesus in his resurrection, too. We get the whole story. It is his death and his resurrection. But here what we're going to do is we're going to symbolically play it out. We're going to act it out. That's what this is about. So we've got little pieces of bread, and what do they symbolize? They symbolize Jesus' body that was broken for us. And what do we do with this juice? We're going to drink it, and in doing so, we are symbolically participating in Jesus' death and the blood that was spilled. Right? It symbolizes his blood that was spilled for us. The blood of the new covenant. The blood that brings us peace with God. And, and actually, that peace is the, is the cornerstone for and the source of all the other peace. That's good news. And we look forward also to Jesus' second coming when he brings peace once again. So this is, this is what we're doing. So we're going to pass out the bread. We'll take, we'll eat it together. We'll pass out the juice and eat it together, all in remembering the peace that Jesus brings through his death. We have a good king, don't we? We do that. We're willing to do that. It's a benevolent fund offering. I just, one more, one more thing. I'm burdened by the fact that there are so many counterfeit ways to peace. And we can, we can let those get us and take us away from Jesus. But Jesus is the eternal source of peace. Every, every other counterfeit thing is going to pass away. But there's peace in Jesus. We cling to him this week. This is the week to, to think about that as we think about Jesus' death. And his resurrection. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming. You're dismissed.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.